Hey everyone, a quick note before we start today's episode, I want to point you to our brand new website at guiltgracepod.com for all things guilt, grace, gratitude, all of our podcasts, their categories by type, by episode, by season, by author, by topics, by all those good things. So everything guilt, grace, gratitude podcast you can find at guiltgracepod.com. Dot com, as well as our brand new confessional podcast network, which will be housed at confessionalpods.com. We have our inaugural sets of podcasts who have joined us, and we have more who are coming on board pretty soon. And you can also find the confessional podcast network on anywhere good podcasts are found. If you guys can help us in any way financially, go to guiltgracepod.com to give and donate. We have a lot of big plans for 2023 and beyond. and We would love for you to partner and support and build this bridge to confessional reform theology with us. Now, let's get on to this episode. The political divide is just so heated and so sharp. And what you get is that it's like you have to defend, you know, one side at every cost and you have to demonize the other side at every cost. Yeah. And I think Christians should be really, really careful about getting sucked into that. Mm. Um, we should be more interested in truth mm-hmm. than whether one, you know, the this one side w- wins. Uh, uh, we, we should... It, it would seem that we as Christians would have an interest in promoting as much peace as we can, as much truth uh, as we can, as much reconciliation among people as we can. And I think that means that we don't just give a free pass to one political party. Welcome to the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast featuring Peter Bell and Nick Fulweiler. This is a show about Christian doctrine for everyone from the historic Reformed tradition, delivered by two friends in an unscripted dialogue. Join us as we discuss how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Now, Hello, everyone. Yet once again, it's another day of fresh grace and mercy. This is the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast sponsored by Lagos Bible Software where we bridge the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. Today, we're on an apologetics episode. We're going to be talking about politics today with David Van Drunen, a repeat guest on our show. We're very thankful to have him come back and help us with this topic. So uh, if you guys go to our show notes, you can find out a little bit more about Dr. Van Drunen and some of his works. If you guys are on YouTube, you can see uh, me hold up one of, this book, one of his books here. Politics After Christendom, Political Theology in a Fractured World, published by Zondervan Academics. So we'll have that book and some other resources on our show notes for you guys. Uh, There's also a link to find the closest Reformed and Confessional Churches near you. So if you click that NAPARC link, you can type in your zip code and the Reformed denominations closest to you will pop up, whether it's OPC, PCA, URC, or many others. There's also information on how to find Peter or myself through the social media universe and communicate with us if you want. Uh, Twitter and Instagram is the most common way to get a hold of us and the easiest way to get a hold of us. At Guilt Grace Pod is the handle for both those platforms. You can also find us on YouTube, like I mentioned earlier. And uh, if, if it's more 
your jam to listen to these episodes through a video and YouTube. We got you there. Just subscribe to us on YouTube. Uh, and then Austin, you heard me mention about Bridge Builders. Uh, uh, Logos Bible Software is our main sponsor. So halfway through this episode, you'll hear words from some of our other sponsors as well. But I want to, don't want to take too much more time, and I want to jump right into this episode. It's a fun and great way to kind of start wrapping up our apologetic season on 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 politics very important <laughs> conversation very interesting so let peter further introduce dr <clears throat> david van drunen yeah we have dr david van drunen who's robert b strimple professor of systematic theology and christian ethics at westminster seminary california which is now my alumnus institution so i just graduated from there in uh, may he's also the author of living in god's two kingdoms biblical vision for christianity and culture which will be diving into that as well and divine covenants and moral order a biblical theology of natural law which will also be diving into some of these issues but thank you for coming on again dr vendrinen yeah you're welcome thanks for having me absolutely yeah so before we start this episode on the two things you you uh you can't talk about the thanksgiving dinner table both religion and politics yeah if you want to let our listeners know who may not know you maybe some some brief personal background and, and current work Sure. Um, I'm, a, I'm a Chicago area native and um, finished up my education there at uh, Northwestern University School of Law and uh, 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 PhD at Loyola University of Chicago. I was also ordained uh, in the Chicago area in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Mm-hmm. And uh, I came out to uh, Southern California in 2001, uh, which is when I began teaching at Westminster, California. So uh, as uh, Nick mentioned, I teach uh, systematic theology and ethics there. And uh, I've done, certainly done uh, a lot of my research and writing in the kinds of things that we're talking about uh, here today, Mm -hmm. natural law, um, Mm -hmm. law and religion, uh, uh, Christianity and culture issues. And uh, currently I'm uh, at work uh, on a big project, uh, a reform moral theology. So. Those are a few highlights. I uh, got a wife and a son, and um, I should probably mention them as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes, sometimes we forget to our detriment. But <clears throat> yeah, I remember reading your Reform Moral Theology in class. I think technically the first volume, although I know you're like kind of changing up the volumes as the publisher wants some different stuff. But how's how's that been going for you? Uh, it's been going well, I think. Thank you. I I really enjoy working on it, and uh, just. I sort of fight for as much time as I can uh, <laughs> yeah. to work on it with all the other responsibilities. But yeah, it's um, it's going to come out in one big volume. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I I need to finish working on it in 2026. So it sounds like a long <laughs> time away for the rest of you, but it seems like a very short time for me. Uh, uh, so, uh, so thanks. Yeah, it's uh, I it's it's a privilege to work on such mm-hmm. a great topic, and um, I'm enjoying all the time I get to. Uh, to put it together. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. We'll be kind of dip into some of that stuff in this conversation as well. And, and generally speaking, I think most people know for know you for your work on two kingdom, the doctrine um, of two kingdom. And we'll talk about why we don't call it theology later on and the Noahic covenant and navigating the church and society as a Christian. So what, what began your interest in these research areas? Is you're, you're kind of known for these research areas. What, what began that research area? 
Yeah, well, there's there's probably a sense in which it began uh, a really long time ago. I mean, I was even when I was young and I mean, junior high, high school, I was I was kind of interested in kind of public affairs. I was hmm. interested in what was going on in the world and um, sort of paid attention to political developments. I probably read the newspaper every day, like much younger before. <laughs> probably the only high schooler or junior high schooler ever did that. <laughs> so, um yeah, and I think when I uh, I, I I I had that that interest in the affairs of the world, and I think when I went to seminary and uh, became I went down a theological track, I think it was natural for me to think about you know what does scripture, how does scripture train us to think about these things, and what what is a a, a good reformed theology for thinking about law and thinking about political community and these things. And uh, I, I should try to avoid making this too long of a story, but it was, uh, I, I, I think as I, as I went through seminary and then my time immediately after seminary as I'm thinking about these things, and I, it wasn't clear to me that there was, I, 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 that the reformed discourse of the day was really extraordinarily helpful. <laughs> uh, and as I was reading older reformed theology, I was running into ideas like natural law hmm. and um, the doctrine of the two kingdoms. And I had not been taught these things in seminary and, and people in the reformed world, this is like, you know, mid to late nineties. They, hey, they Westminster California didn't teach you two kingdoms when you were there. Uh, it just wasn't talked about. And uh, I should say, no one was talking about it. Then. Yeah. I mean, like, no one was talking about these things then. And um, so I just, I, I went to law school after uh, my master of divinity degree. And so and that really, extra provoked me to be thinking about these <laughs> yeah. things. And uh, so I just, uh, I, I was trying to think hard about this and trying to think, I, I, it seemed to me that some of these older reform categories were actually really useful. Uh, and so I just kept developing that. And I went and uh, my, my PhD was in ethics and that allowed me further opportunity to try to work this out. So uh, in a way it, I started thinking about this a long time ago and haven't really stopped. Awesome. Yeah, and generally speaking, you're most known uh, for your work on two kingdom theology. And I know you don't like that. It's not. It's a doctrine. Um, so the 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 term two kingdom theology, we can kind of correct that, nuance that. It, it you mentioned it is a doctrine or a theological category, not a theology. Um, but. Uh, Many likely wondered what the relationship is with the Noahic covenant. I thought that was a brilliant uh, thing to bring out in your book of politics after Christendom. It was so helpful to start ironing out and flushing out what two kingdom doctrine is related to the Noahic covenant um, it has to do with our understanding of politics and civil life. Right. And so what is the relationship and what is, what is important to understand as Christians in the civil realm? Well, you know, the, the, the basic idea of the two kingdoms is that God rules all things, but there's a basic distinction in the way that, that, that he rules this world. And he has this common preservative rule uh, by which he upholds all things and maintains civil communities uh, as well as having this redemptive rule uh, by which he, uh, the gospel is proclaimed and he gathers uh, his church unto everlasting life. 
so if we're thinking about the the first of those, this this common rule, this preservative rule, mm. uh, one of the things that I began thinking about really early when in, just a moment ago when we were talking about my how my interest in this developed, and I think this was one of sort of my early moves in trying to think through this, and uh, it was to try to bring together our Reformed Covenant theology and this old idea of the two kingdoms. And uh, the Noahic Covenant, uh, which you mentioned, has been an important part of my work. And so we're, we're, we're thinking here about uh, particularly the, the, the post-flood covenant mm -hmm. that God made, which yeah. is recorded basically from uh, Genesis 8.21 through 9.17. Yeah. And in this covenant, uh, it's it's remarkable. I mean, there's there's this is not a a covenant that promises salvation for God's people. There's nothing about a Messiah, nothing about forgiveness of sins. Uh, there's nothing about uh, everlasting life and a new creation. I mean, that's just not what this covenant is about. Mm -hmm. What this covenant promises is that God is not going to destroy this world again with a great flood. Uh, he's going to uh, he's going to preserve this world. He's going to reestablish the cycles of nature. Uh, he's going to uh, preserve uh, the, the human community, which he calls to be fruitful and to multiply and to do justice. And what's what's really clear about this covenant is that it is made with, uh, well, it's it's universal. It's made with all living creatures. Mm -hmm. So all human beings, as well as the the animal realm and the broader natural world. And the, I think this is just so important for thinking about civil life, about political community. Uh, here in this covenant, uh, God, uh, he commissions the human race as a whole to do justice. He who sheds the blood of man by man will his blood be shed. This is not a call to justice that's only for believers. Mm -hmm. uh, that's only, uh, it, it, and it, it's not a call for, you know, for believers to, you know, to destroy unbelievers. In fact, it, it's just the opposite. It, it's, um, it, it it's a call for human beings to live together in peace and justice. Yeah, mm -hmm. and uh, and that covenant was put into place for as long as this world endures. Mm -hmm. And so we can say now, I mean, from from the perspective of the full revelation of the New Testament, this covenant was put into place until Christ returns, and mm -hmm. that means it's still in effect today. And so um, I I've made the argument of I I've I I've talked about the Noah covenant in some earlier books, but especially in politics after Christendom, yep. mm -hmm. I've made a really uh, a, a long argument that yeah. really the Noah covenant is foundational for the way we think about yeah. a 400 uh, page long argument or however long <laughs> politics after Christendom is. Yeah, totally. Um, before, before next, next question too, because we, we've, we've emailed back and forth about this and I, I took your, your classes on this as well. Why? And because I think it's it's so pervasive, I guess, in reform circles, I guess you can call it in outside reform circles, too. Why is it maybe not proper to call it reformed or a two kingdom theology and more proper to call it a two kingdom doctrine? Yeah, I don't I don't know. I don't know where it started that people started calling it two kingdoms theology. Well, I also when people refer to the two two kingdoms singular theology, I don't understand that at all, because you don't usually if you have two, you got to make it plural. So. Uh, I'm not sure, uh, but in terms of theology, I don't know where two kingdoms theology came from. And I, I wouldn't say that it's necessarily inherently improper to use that term. Yeah, but I it's think not what it, you said. It, 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 it seems to suggest that this is some sort of 
um, well, for one thing, maybe some sort of idiosyncratic, some sort of um, weird thing over here, this sort of a theology of its own, or may maybe that this is like, this is the heart of a theological system as mm. if, you know, all of theology is like spinning out of the two kingdoms <laughs> or something. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, what I would want to emphasize is uh, what I'm, what I'm interested in is in reformed Christianity and thus in reformed theology, which yep. is a biblical theology. And within reformed theology, we have a number of doctrines. We have many doctrines. And one of those doctrines that I would say is the two kingdoms. Uh, it's 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 one mm. aspect of a full orbed mm. reformed theology. Mm. You know, I mean, if we might talk about the doctrine of sanctification, but we probably wouldn't say um, wouldn't refer to sanctification theology. That would just sounds kind of it, th <laughs> yeah. it sounds a little odd. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. so I would just I would just say uh, the same thing about the two kingdoms. It's a doctrine. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a theological idea that's part of a larger reformed biblical system of doctrine hmm. yeah i think that relates to some of nick's questions too because it sometimes it seems like people who are critics of it will call it a two kingdom theology because they're trying to make it more expansive or like a more core doctrine than what you're saying it's more yes it's it's it builds from this but it's not the core of our doctrine yeah yeah and they could be getting tribalistic too saying well we you either believe in two kingdom theology or you're in a completely different camp instead yeah, exactly. of saying, you know, two kingdoms is a theological category and it's better. Like Dr. Ben Jr. is saying is better best describes as a doctrine. So it's yeah. a doctrine catching, catching the audience up today. Two kingdoms is a doctrine and it's based on the Noahic covenant, which is a non-redemptive covenant. And and so that's catching us up here. And so I, I would also say, Nick, yes. just to fill it out, it's, I would say, not only based on the Noahic covenant, but also on the covenant of grace that yep. is yes. revealed to Abraham and Moses and the new covenant. Yep. So, so I would say, you know, for the common preservative kingdom, yes, that is grounded in the Noahic covenant. But if we're going to think about the other kingdom, which is actually the most important kingdom, yep. right? This, 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 this yep. everlasting uh, kingdom, which Hebrew says a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Yep. Um, this is, this is grounded also in, in covenant, uh, in the, in those covenant promises that God made to Abraham, that he continued to advance to Israel. And that now in these last days, he's brought to fulfillment in, um, the new covenant. So, That's um, awesome. so I, so I would say that the, uh, all of this is built, uh, upon, or at least I would like to argue that it's, it's very much related to our sort of a full orb covenant theology. Hmm. Yeah, yes, definitely. It's it's great that you uh, clarified that because the Noahic covenant is an administration from the covenant of grace. So it's, it's well, I, yeah, I, I guess I would I would understand that a little bit differently. I would say that 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 the, the Noahic covenant is distinct from the covenant of grace. I, I would prefer to call it a covenant yeah. of common grace. It allows the it, I'm sorry, yeah, it allows it to grace. operate. Yeah. yeah, 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 that's what I meant. Yeah, yeah. and so there, there have been some differences in uh, the reform community yeah. on exactly how to, you know, how to categorize the Noahic covenant. But I would um, I, I would agree with a lot of older theologians I mean, really old ones like Vitius um, and more recent ones, but not too recent, like Bob Inc. and Kuiper and Voss, who would say, you know, it's it, it's a distinct covenant of common grace. Yes, actually. Yeah, that's what I was meaning to say is common grace. And I said, there's grace. But yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> cool. um, so turning to the again, the two kingdom doctrine, can you help define a little bit more what this refers to positively and 
And of course, some of the common, the most common misunderstandings that you hear of. Yeah, well, uh, positively, I, I would go back to what I was saying earlier that it's uh, God, God rules all things, but has this, there's, there is a basic twofold way that, that, that uh, he does that. And um, so just to tie that into what I think are some common misconceptions, sometimes innocently, sometimes I think there's kind of purposeful um, mis misportrayal of it, but the, uh, it's very important to emphasize that God is the king of both kingdoms. Uh, th these are two ways of yep. in which God rules the world. Uh, and uh, sometimes it's portrayed as if, you know, that the, the two kingdoms idea is meant to, you know, cordon off this part of life in which we sort of do our own thing. And, you know, this, this, you know, this part of life is under God's authority. And this part is under, you know, I, I guess we kind of do, do our thing here. Hmm. That is, uh, it, it, the doctor has never meant that. Uh, and uh, I think that's just, uh, that's just a basic uh, misunderstanding uh, along with that. I think it's also worth noting that both kingdoms, because they're both under God's rule, uh, they are under God's law, hmm. right? So uh, it's not as if God's law only applies in one or the hmm. other. I would say God's law applies differently in these. Um, but it still applies. In these two rules, but they're both under uh, under God's law. Uh, they're both under God's moral law. Um, and even hmm. though, you know, if you know, even if that gets worked out in, uh, in, in different ways, I think it's really important to say that. And I don't think, I think that's often not appreciated by those who are, um, critical, uh, of the idea. Yeah. So nat natural law, you would see a connection with natural law and two kingdom doctrine. Well, uh, I, I would, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, I think one of the real, uh, one of the real benefits of having a robust, natural law uh conviction uh, mm. i'm trying to think how to how to say that best maybe, maybe just doctrine i mean having a doctrine of, of natural law is that it helps to uh, it helps us to explain how god continues to rule all the world right he doesn't just rule his church mm -hmm. he rules all the worlds uh every civil government in the world is accountable to god uh, every every business in the world is accountable to God. Every school in the world is accountable to God. Every laboratory in the world is accountable to God. And how is that? It's not because everyone there has read the scriptures. Uh, it's because uh, God makes his natural revelation known to all people in all places at all times. And uh, so people, uh, whether they acknowledge it or not, uh, they they are confronted with with God's natural law simply by virtue of being human beings in this world. Hmm. And so I think without, without a conception of natural law, it becomes very difficult to explain how is it that God is actually ruling all of these areas of life in which people are not reading the scriptures and um, don't, don't confess his name. Hmm. Yeah, and this next question I think is, is really uh, something that a lot of people are pondering about when they see a see the title especially more so recently too politics yeah and it's how how does the how should we expect or how does the state play in your understanding state you know civil governance play in your understanding of two kingdoms and then kind of like related to that how should christians understand this and navigate these two realms i mean for me personally I work in the 
secular world of, you know, have a job like just everyone else. I mean, there's people out there that run in, um, for office that happen to be Christian. There's so a lot of like all Christians in the kingdom of God that are Christian live in, you know, the, this, the other kingdom as well. So that's kind of where we're running. How do we, how do we navigate these waters? What do we, what do we need to expect? Yeah. Well, that's, uh, you ask a number of questions here. Let me, let me do my best with it and you can follow up. Uh, <laughs> yeah, sorry. If you need I got here. excited. Um, <laughs> yeah. I think the first thing you asked was sort of uh, how, where the state falls in this. Yeah. And I would say, um, I think the state is, is, is a fairly important aspect of a two kingdoms doctrine, but I wouldn't overemphasize it. So, uh, the what I would understand is the common kingdom, this this preservative rule uh, of God, or really that that encompasses all of what we might think of as ordinary life. Uh, so it that the state does exist under God's common rule, but it's not just the state. Right? It's also it's also our economic life. I think it's our our scientific life, our our you know art and science and recreation, I mean, all these things, I would say, also fall under God's common rule. So uh, I would not, I would not identify the state as sort of the common kingdom. Uh, I would say that the state exists under the authority of God who rules this common kingdom. So, so I think that would be one part of my answer. Uh, So, but as you ask, you know, how do Christians navigate this? uh, I mean, that, that, that's a really big question. And I would say even the very idea that Christians belong in both kingdoms and have responsibilities in both kingdoms, I mean, just that alone is an important affirmation that we can't take for granted um, among uh, all believers. Uh, This is something that I I didn't say earlier when you asked me about, you know, what's what's the two kingdoms idea uh, about, uh, but this is something that's important is, is, is Christians live under both of God's rules. Uh, We as Christians, uh, we are members of his church, and we are the blessed recipients of his redemptive rule, Uh, but we, uh, all of us, have vocations in, uh, out in the world, and that, you know, which vocations we have varies from person to person. Uh, There's no one required set of things we have to do. I mean, some people work in this area, some people work in that area. Some people are really involved in, you know, sports and other people aren't. Some people are really engaged in politics, other people aren't. I think there's lots of flexibility as to how, you know, where we spend our time. And and I think maybe that's an important part of the, uh, the answer as well. Uh, there's no There's no one blueprint that this is how Christians have to spend their time in, you know, in the world. I mean, there are lots of ways that we can, we can engage other people and a, a, a whole broad range of activities that we can take up. But I think one thing, and m- maybe I'll stop with this and then you can follow up uh, as you wish, that I think it's really helpful for us as Christians to, to look at our common vocations as opportunities uh, to serve God and serve our neighbor. Mm. And so it's not as if, even though there's a lot of freedom as to what, you know, what kind of job we have, what sorts of activities we're involved in, I think in all of them, there is, we should see these as opportunities uh, to be of service. Now, we know we're supposed to love our neighbor. I mean, that's just, that's fundamental Christian ethics. 
And how, how do we do it? Well, there are lots of ways we can do it, but one way we do it is through our ordinary vocations. And so uh, I, don't, I don't know what kind of work you're involved in, Nick. Maybe you've told me and I've forgotten, but I mean, <laughs> uh, hopefully when you go to work, He's in hospice. Yeah. So it's really neighbor focused. Uh, okay. Yeah. I mean that, that your work can bless other people that, yeah. that in some way you can be God's instrument for, for helping others, uh, for serving others. And, you know, I mean, if you're, if you're a farmer, you do that through your farming, right? I mean, you, you, you're growing food and you're serving other people. You're in a sense, God's instrument uh, for that. And you can, I think there are probably some, some jobs where you might not be able to do that, but you know, if that's the case, maybe Christians ought to rethink having those kinds of jobs. If your job truly does not serve anyone's benefit, <laughs> then, you know, maybe that's not the place God wants you. But uh, I, I just think it's, uh, it can really enrich our lives in, in this world if we think of it uh, in terms of love and service to others. That's good you brought that up based on vocation and things like that, because in how us Christians navigate this common world, common kingdom. Um, because I think what you're saying kind of goes against what a lot of people assume two kingdoms doctrine is that doesn't really understand two kings doctrine. They miss, they misrepresent or misunderstand it thinking two kingdom people like to just stick to their, stick to themselves and not, not kind of reach out and help their community. Cause they, they're kind of a hands-off approach. They're like, well, you know, it's two kingdoms for a reason. It's very separated. I just, I'm Christian. I belong to my church. I belong to worshiping God. And then, um, the, the, the other kingdom, I don't need, I don't need to get involved with. I feel like that's unfortunately what people that are anti two kingdom kind of think. And I don't know if that, that assumption is me being hearing anecdotal experiences, but just, Maybe you could answer if that's in your experience, things that you've commonly heard that, that kind of element. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I certainly have heard that, uh, objection and I, it, it's always puzzled me a bit. I mean, I, I think I can, I think I can understand why someone might, if they just hear about this doctrine for the, maybe that the, they just hear a little bit about it for the first time, they might wonder about that. Yeah. But, uh, if you, for anyone who actually pays attention to the way I don't know, uh, certainly the way I, I describe it, but I think a lot of the way that other people describe it, I, I'm not sure why they would really get that impression. And I'm not sure it really, if you look at the lives of people who find this a helpful category, um, it seems like these people are, they're, they're out at work, they're out involved mm -hmm. in their communities, they're interested in politics, they're interested in other kinds of cultural questions. Um, I mean, maybe there are, I, I'm sure there are some people out there who are, appealing to the two kingdoms to to not take responsibility uh for ordinary life but i don't think there are a whole lot of people out there like that frankly and it's certainly uh, if there are i would say that's that's just i mean that's a misuse of, of yeah. the two kingdoms doctrine and i mean people can always misuse doctrines i mean people misuse also people <laughs> misuse the doctrine of the trinity people misuse yeah. the doctrine of justification oh, yeah. uh, so it, it's not surprising if people would misuse the doctrine of the two kingdoms, but I think it's important to say anyone who makes those sorts of claims is that's that's just a misuse and mis mischaracterization. Yeah, uh, that's... It, it, it's not a matter of whether we should yeah. be involved and take responsibility for ordinary affairs. It's a matter of how do we do it and how do we see this fit into 
God's larger plan for the world and for our lives. Yeah, we actually had a conversation with Dr. Estelle earlier this year on his book, The Primary Mission of the Church, mm -hmm. where, and I think, I think that's what sometimes gets missed, the distinction between the church and her mission and then individual Christians within that church and their mission mm -hmm. as individual Christians. And I think sometimes the two kingdom doctrine gets misunderstood because the church is not taking political action or taking a political stand mm -hmm. when the individual people may take it where you don't see that distinction. So you kind of flatten out everything and say, well, if the church doesn't, then all oh, those two kingdom guys, they're just kind of doing their own thing and not really doing anything else. But mm -hmm. it's no, actually it's, we distinguish between the church and the people because the church preaches the gospel. The people may be involved in these things, but the church has one mission. Uh, that makes sense. So like me, for example, me, Nick, I can go do these things in the, in the common kingdom, go, go vote the way I want, go, go to a, a, a pro-life March. If I want do all these things, get involved in the community, but my church isn't going to actually like representing my actual OPC church isn't going to necessarily do that representing the actual church because the church itself as mentioned is preaching the gospel serving for worship and yeah. then me is yeah 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 i and yeah i i think i think that is an important dimension of all these things that, that we're talking about and it's you know certainly the church the church's responsibility is to pro proclaim the whole counsel of god mm -hmm. Uh, which we understand that that language is taken from Acts 20. And we understand mm -hmm. that as, as a reference that we preach the whole of the scriptures. We don't just pick out the text or the doctrines yep. that we like. And so if, if we take that seriously, uh, clearly the church is going to address some things that have exactly. political dimensions. Mm -hmm. And especially in our own day when like everything's getting politicized. Well, mm -hmm. of course, I mean, we need to teach about family. We need to teach about sex. Uh, we need to teach about the value of human life. And of course, these things are, oh, we need to, to we need to teach about work, right? I mean, mm -hmm. so all these things are get into, uh, they have political overtones. So it's not as if, and this is maybe um, another area where there could be clarification and sometimes misunderstanding. It When you say that the, the church is not political or, or doesn't preach politics, it doesn't mean that the church can't talk about things that have entered into our political dialogue, our political yep. debates. Uh, we're not going to stop talking about marriage because mm -hmm. marriage has become a politically debated issue, right? But I think what's really important to say is that the church does not seek to be a political player. Mm -hmm. uh, we are going to, we're going to teach as the church, we are going to teach what scripture does, but we're not going to, the church is not going to become an agent of partisan politics. Uh, the church is not going to lay out a public, a public policy strategy. Yeah. The church is not going to try to micromanage the way its people think about every single uh, political issue. We, we just need, the church needs to do its job to, to keep preaching the gospel and hopefully instilling wisdom uh, in the people of God so that they can, when they get into the trenches of political life, as well as other things that they can act wisely and hopefully be winsome and prudent as they, as they, as they participate in these various things. Yeah. That, that's much more wise than <laughs> us getting involved as representing churches, getting involved in partisan politics is politics is super messy. Like why would we ever want to be? Yeah, and I, I don't know enough to preach on it on a week to week basis. No, well, I think that, you know, I, yeah, I mean, I think that's part of it is that, um, I mean, why do we, uh, why do we ordain, uh, ministers or elders for their office? You, you look at like the qualifications in first Timothy three, 
it doesn't seem to be like you know being an expert in economic policy or an expert in yeah. foreign policy that these these are actually uh, uh, you know these are qualifications. And I mean, preaching the whole counsel of God is hard enough. I mean, <laughs> yeah, you know, seriously, uh, yeah. To, to do good Greek and Hebrew exegesis of the text that you're doing, I mean, yeah. that's hard work. And I mean, we put an awful lot of pressure on pastors if we expect them also to become experts in all the latest debates that are going on on Fox News and CNN every week. Yeah. I, yeah. Let's let's not do that. Hey, all, this is Peter, one of the co-hosts of the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast with a word from one of our sponsors, our title sponsor at Logos Bible Software. Have you gotten your free book of the month from Logos yet? Join tens of thousands of believers who build their library with a free new digital theological book each and every month. Then read it on the free Logos Bible study app. Logos is the easiest to use, most powerful Bible study tool on the planet. You heard that right, on the planet. It works on mobile, the web, and even has an amazing app for your laptop. I myself use the mobile app every night to read from the Hebrew, the Greek, and a few other resources. I love it. I've used other apps, and this is the best one on the market. It really, truly is. And if you want to go even deeper, you can choose from a vast selection of the top books for in-depth Bible study. There's also step-by-step videos to help you learn how to study the Bible like a pro. So get your free book of the month today. Go to logos.com slash guiltgrace and get started with Logos today. We have this link in our show notes. So just open up our podcast, find our show notes, click this link, and you can get started with us with Logos Bible Software. As you probably know, we talk a lot about Westminster Seminary, California on here. I can't even begin to tell you the impact this institution has had on my faith, my family, and the ministry the Lord has entrusted me with. If you feel called to serve the church and want the most rigorous training for gospel ministry around, consider coming to Westminster Seminary, California, a confessionally reformed institution in sunny San Diego that offers master's degrees in biblical and theological studies, historical theology, and divinity. Westminster's approach to ministry education emphasizes a mastery of the original biblical languages, maintaining a small student-to-professor ratio, a laser focus on face-to-face education coupled with an understanding of the importance of having pastor-scholars with decades of ministry experience train the next generation of servant leaders for the Church of Jesus Christ. If this interests you, and I hope it does, call Westminster today at 888-480-8474 to talk to an admissions counselor or visit www.wscal.edu. Again, call Westminster Seminary California today at 888-480-8474 or log on to www.wscal.edu, which will all be available in our show notes. Westminster Seminary California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. Are you a student who's looking to go deeper into classical Protestantism and our theological heritage? What about a pastor who wants some sharpening of his theological, exegetical, and historical toolboxes? Are you a layperson who's looking for theological wisdom? Maybe you're an educator looking to lay a classical foundation in theology. 
The Davenant Institute seeks to retrieve the riches of classical Protestantism to renew and build up the contemporary church. And key to this mission is their educational arm, Davenant Hall. In an age where much theological education both overlooks the riches of church history and keeps students in debt, Davenant Hall is reimagining theological education. They take full advantage of digital technology to make high-quality theological education affordable via online classes. Davenant offers an MLIT in classical Protestantism with the standard and pastoral ministry tracks, and a brand new PhD program in partnership with Union Theological College and Davenant Hall supervisors. Yet they insist that in-person fellowship is key to Christian formation. So to that end, they host regular residentials at the Davenant House Study Center in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountain region of South Carolina. Registration for spring 2023 classes running April to June are now open, but registration closes March 29th. Fees start at just $225 for a 10-week class with a two-hour Zoom class from expert professors each week. Classes include the Reformation in the Modern World, a Biblical Theology of the Sexes, Augustine's City of God, and so many more. These classes look incredible. Visit www.davenanthall.com to find out more or www.davenantinstitute.org for more information about the whole organization or go to our show notes and click on the link. Yeah, I've been preaching through Amos and Amos is hard enough on its own because we, we translated yeah. it in Estelle's class in Prophets and to keep up with the political news and the economic news like I like I'm having a hard enough time figure out what Amos is saying in Amos 5 and you want me to go read Fox News or CNN to like in like I just I have way more on my plate than just that stuff well and God God doesn't change but politics and culture constantly are just yeah, flailing around the place up. yeah so when it comes to um Let's talk a little bit about the Old Testament theocracy under the Mosaic law, because um, that seems to kind of go a little bit more against from what I'm hearing, what we kind of with two kingdom doctrine, focusing more on the Noahic covenant aspect. You see this, you see people that are focused on the Old Testament theocracy under the Mosaic law and bringing that, that to that New Testament church today. Um, after, even though it's, we're right now after the life, death and resurrection of Christ. So can you kind of touch yeah. on this, the old Testament theocracy, mosaic law, how s- some people are trying to pull that into the new Testament church today? Yeah. yeah. There doesn't seem to be distinction back then. So why are we distinguishing now? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a great question. I think it's uh, it's not hard to understand why this is attractive uh, to a lot of people, right? If you're thinking, okay, I want to think in a biblical way about law and about politics. I mean, where can you go in Scripture to actually find de- you know detailed laws about how we live together? He's like, well, the law of Moses. So it kind of it, it's understandable that people would go there. But I do think it is a fundamental error. Uh, to try to make the Mosaic law or, and the Mosaic theocracy then a model for uh, our own uh, political life today. I, I think it's it's important to, to, to recognize first that 
God entered the Mosaic law with old covenant Israel. Uh, he entered that covenant, not with every nation of the world, but he entered it with Israel when he brought them out of Egypt. Mm -hmm. uh, and th that's just very clear uh, in uh, the Old Testament. And then uh, in the New Testament, you know, you think about a text like Galatians 3, which is very clear that God, God uh, uh, instituted the law of Moses for a time until the savior would come to whom it was to whom, to whom everything was was uh pointing uh this law had a temporary function uh, it was for one nation of the world for a particular period of time and the end of hebrews 8 uh says that this uh this law has become obsolete uh it's 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 passing away so i think we have to recognize that this mosaic law served a particular purpose of god at a particular time in in history uh, and we, we sometimes refer to this as a theocracy because uh, go, because God did, uh, he entered into covenant with the whole nation, mm -hmm. uh, with the whole nation of Israel in that promised land. I mean, the promised land is a very small part of this earth, right? You, just, you, look, at, you, you look at the <laughs> globe and Palestine yeah. is a very, very small part of it. Mm -hmm. But in that very small geographical area, God entered into, you say, a holistic relationship. And there was... I mean, under the Mosaic law, there were pagan Gentiles were not all they, they were not supposed to all live there. And so they were Israel was to to get rid of the the, the former uh, occupants of that land. They were they were to drive out and destroy uh, these pagan peoples uh, who live there. This was to be a pure and holy land uh, to the Lord. And I think we just have to realize that that law, even though that law of Moses is still, I mean, that was inspired. Uh, it was righteous, perfectly righteous for that time, for that people. And there's still so much we learn from that about God and his work. Uh, at the same time, God didn't give that law as a model for civil laws today. Uh, there is no holy land for Christians. Right? I mean, it's it's not Palestine. It's not North America. It, it's not anywhere. There is the New Testament is clear. There's no holy land for us. Mm -hmm. uh, what God wants of us is he wants Christians everywhere. Right? He wants wherever there are people living on this globe. The Lord wants churches there. Uh, he wants us to go and preach the gospel and gather uh, uh, his saints. Uh, so we are not that the church is not it doesn't belong to any particular nation. It, it is supposed to dwell among many nations. Uh, and uh, God does not call us as a church to get to get rid of our pagan neighbors. I mean, there is a real sense. I, I, I think sometimes we're, you know, uh, we want to be a little cautious and downplay this for understandable reasons. But we have to be honest that under the Mosaic law, Israel was to eliminate to destroy the pagan nations that lived in that land. And the fact is we are not called to do that as New Testament Christians. I mean, definitively not. Yep. We're called to evangelize them. You can't you can't evangelize people you've killed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, it seems obvious, but that's, you know, if, if you're gonna make the Mosaic law the model, then I guess you've got to in institute some kind of program for destroying your pagan neighbors. We're not called to destroy them. We're called to evangelize them. Hmm. Uh, we need to love all people, uh, whether or not they confess the name of Christ, but we love them with the hope that, you know, maybe one day they will join us. Maybe one day they will confess the name of Christ too. So uh, it, it is, I think, absolutely essential that we understand as we think about politics today, that, um, you know, it, things are very different uh, under 
uh, the new covenant. We can't spread the gospel by the sword. And if we did, it would make Christianity look really bad. Like it's, yeah. Or like, or I remember in your class, it's like, what, what branch of Christianity are you spreading by the sword? Is it, is it the Presbyterian branch, the Methodist branch, or all of them get together? Cause that's not, that's, that's not going to happen. So it's like, who are you actually spreading? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, if, if you're going to have a, if, if you're going to have a theocracy, that means that, that you are going to have to trust your government um, to be theologically, uh, to be theologically <laughs> savvy, to be theologically orthodox. Yeah. And I mean, you look at how, you know, all the things that our governments screw up, yeah. that, you know, you really trust them to be good theologians, uh, yeah. to, to, to recognize and protect the one true church. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's, yeah. Good luck. You, you lost me at trust your government. I yeah, was like, it's, yeah, it's pretty clear now. Like we shouldn't really throw all our trust into that. Yeah, we can't. Yeah. If we can't, if, if pastors cannot be both, um, we're trying to be expert theologians and experts in the text. And we can't also be experts in politics and economics. How do we expect those who are supposed to be experts in government or experts in economics or politics to also be, if we can't expect one of pastors, how do we expect one of, of our civil, of our civil yeah, leaders. That's exactly right. Um, so with, with some of this background, some people may be wondering, well, you guys didn't tell me how to vote or how should Christians vote and all that stuff, which is, which is a, not the point of this episode is kind of to think about some of these issues. Um, but with, with some of this background laid out, we've already kind of touched on this, but what maybe is the relation? I mean, no state is, is amongst the many of the kind of common uh, in the common kingdom amongst the many in, in the common kingdom. So how, how should the church relate to the political realms? I know we've we've talked about they shouldn't be the political beacon. We shouldn't like we're coming up right when we're recording this now. November is coming up for the kind of primary season and stuff, and so a lot of churches will have like how this is how you should vote or voters' guides and all that stuff, mm. which I, I think we would all agree that's not that's not what we should be doing. But if it's not that, then how should the church as a as a church relate? And then maybe to distinguish that from Christians. Cause it, I think that doesn't get a play in two kingdom doctrine is um, the individual individual Christian relating to politics. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, as we were talking uh, mm. earlier, I think the, uh, the, 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 the church as it, as it, as it carries out its responsibility, uh, it will be preaching the whole counsel of God. It'll be discipling the people of God and seeking to build them up. It, in wisdom, uh, and uh, um, as it does so, uh, we certainly would uh, hope that uh, that Christians will be growing. Uh, individual Christians mm -hmm. and even groups of Christians outside the church, you know, yep. can can think well, uh, can learn to think well uh, about um, political issues and um, participate in beneficial ways uh, in their in their uh, communities. You know, I, I think it's. Uh, you know, on the one hand, I'd say it's not surprising that Christians with similar theological views tend to vote in generally similar political ways. Yeah. I, I think we we see that, and it's not surprising because there are, I mean, there are a lot of deep moral questions that are involved in politics. So, of course, those who share a broader theology and ethics are going to, I think, going to tend to look at political issues in at least similar ways. Yep. But I think what we what we recognize, and this this came up a little bit in our earlier conversation, that you know, politics is not just about generalities, it's about very specific things. 
Um, uh, and it's also about strategies. Uh, and even people, even Christians who share general moral views, it doesn't mean they're going to agree about how the details get worked out in our political life. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean that we're going to have the exact same strategy. You know, I mean, you can, you can take, uh, uh, you know, uh, a room full of Christians who are all pro-life on the abortion mm -hmm. question. And you ask them, okay, what's the, what's the best way to try to advance a pro-life agenda in the world? Or what's the best way to get the most pro-life laws? And you would get a lot of different opinions about that. Yeah. And that's understandable because scripture doesn't lay out a political strategy for us. And so I think that's, I think that's one, one reason why the church needs to be very careful about embracing a particular, uh, a particular party, a particular uh, uh, movement, uh, identifying itself with some political cause. Um, we have to remember that there's there's going to be a lot of room for for different judgment that Christians have, and you know, you, you, we don't want the church micromanaging that. And also, I would say. Um, political parties, political movements, political causes, they have their own agenda. Mm -hmm. and they are going to want to use the church. Mm -hmm. They're going to want to use, you know, Christianity for their own purposes. And they're they not doing it for us. Yeah. And so <laughs> they're not I trying to we, advance the church's mission. Yeah. No. And so, I mean, even, even if the church does find a particular political party more agreeable than others, you gotta be really careful about identifying with it because, that political party is out for that political party and yeah. they're, they're going to use the church, but they don't, you know, well, and po political parties can, ch nothing's keeping them from changing their mind on certain issues and largely based on what the culture demands, but the Bible does not change. Yeah. So we stay the course on what scripture says and political parties can ebb and flow and change their mind and move around. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Or just, yeah, change emphases, whatever it is. And so, mm -hmm. um, this, this leads to my last question before, before Nick's last question, but mm -hmm. we've already like your last, your last answer kind of veered towards this way. Um, but this is more for those who may think that Christianity, like if you're a Christian, you have to be a Republican. If you're a Christian, you have to be a Democrat, like either, either one of those two avenues, but does, does maybe you can say the gospel Christianity does like, does it favor a certain political ideology? I wouldn't say a, a favorite, a favor political party. Cause like you said, it's kind of changes, but should all Christians be Republican Democrat or, or is maybe, is that question wrongly miss? Is that wrongly misguided? Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I, I would say that we probably almost never want to go down the road of saying all Christians have to have to identify with a particular political party. I mean, I, I think that there may be times where we can say pretty confidently Christians should not be associated with that political party. I mean, if, if you're living in 1930s, 40s Germany, I, yeah. I, I hardly see the Nazi party as like a viable <laughs> option, you know, so exactly. Uh, so I, I, I do think it may be easier at times to say, wow, it's it'd be really hard for a Christian to be to associate with political party X. But I think what's also important to say is that even if there's a political party that may seem much more favorable to Christian morality to say, you know, the freedom of the church to do its work in this world. And, and that, that happened, right? I mean, there's sometimes there are just, there are political parties that are more, more favorable to giving the church its liberty to do yeah. its work. Yeah. And it, it's natural that Christians will gravitate to support that party. But 
then it, it just comes back uh, again to this is that political parties are political, they're political parties and mm -hmm. they exist for uh, their, their own good. And yeah. um, they will inevitably, even the best of political parties will inevitably do things that um, the church doesn't want to be identified with. Uh, and, and I, I think for Christians to retain a very uh, high degree of independence is good. It does, maybe you're going to vote for one party almost all the time. That's okay. But um, I, 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 here's another way of talking about it is that I, I think, you know, we, we, we see, we've seen this increasingly in the United States uh, in recent years and decades where mm -hmm. it's just the, the, the political divide is just so heated and so no. sharp. And what you get is that it's like you have to defend, you know, one side at every cost and you have to demonize the other side at every cost. Yeah. And I think Christians should be really, really careful about getting sucked into that. Mm. Um, we should be more interested in truth <laughs> than whether one, you know, the this one side wins. Uh, we, we should... It, it would seem that we as Christians would have an interest in promoting as much peace as we can, as much truth uh, as we can, as much reconciliation among people as we can. And I think that means that we don't just give a free pass to one political party, um, even if we favor that party for good reasons. Um, um, I think we need to retain a kind of an independent uh, spirit so that we can actually be agents of peace in this world and not just agents of throwing more fuel on the fire uh, of um, of divisions yeah yeah it's hard to be salt and light in the world if we sell ourselves out and start just doing what you know a political party demands of us what a culture demands of us like no we need to be salt and light and like you said you know stay true to our kingdom yeah because it uh, and you know a Another way to think about this is, I mean, presumably we want to evangelize people from all political parties. Yep. So I, you got to think about this. If you're going to um, don't say things about people who have different political views um, that are going to hinder your evangelism uh, mm -hmm. of them, uh, you know, if you express hatred towards someone with different political views, the gospel is not going to have a whole lot of credibility. Um, and I think, I think we're, I think, the American church is reaping uh, a lot of mm. a, a lot of bad harvest because yeah um, because they've got sucked into this um, this very fierce uh, political uh, uh, exchanges yeah, and, uh, yeah. forgotten that you know these are people we want to evangelize so <laughs> exactly let's, yeah let's keep that in mind yeah, yeah. before before next last question too it's and I think this is helpful along what you're just saying is. You, I mean, I, I've heard this, and I'm sure you've heard this too. Where you'll walk by a church, you go to a church website, it's like, oh, that's a, that's a Republican church, or that's a, that's a Democratic church, and or I, I can't go there because I'm a Democrat, or I can't go there because I'm a Republican, or whatever, whatever it may be. Like, I, I align with one party, and that church very, very clearly aligns with another party. Versus thinking, no, that that church exists to preach the gospel, the whole counsel of God, and that comes out clearly. Mm -hmm. I'm not really sure where they fall politically. I can, I can see mm -hmm. some, some issues that they would agree on with me. Yeah. Um, let's go there because I'm going to hear the gospel versus, you know, they agree with me ideologically, therefore I'll go there. Not, I'm going to hear the gospel there on a week to week basis and be formed as a, as a, as a Jesus follower. Yeah. Yeah. I, okay. I agree. That's making sense. Um, 
so just some extra comments um, or questions. But so I think a lot of people wonder too is if you're if your government, it's pretty easy to kind of do what your government tells you when they're when they're doing their role and they're protecting the church, right? The civil government is there to essentially um, under common grace protect the church, even if it's through military means or police, you know, those are through common grace protecting the church. Now, what happens if your civil government turns on the church or, you know, it's restricting um, the ability to worship, you know, and we've even seen, you know, recently we've seen that, um, you know, rumbles of that. Um, but also even in the civil rights movement, I think it was good, you know, Martin Luther King Jr., was a civil rights leader, that kind of thing. So you see Christians go into that sphere to kind of buck against the civil government. When and how do we know when that's okay to do and when uh, when it's not? Yeah, well, um, I, I don't think there's a really easy answer to that question, uh, yeah. at least not a really short uh, answer to <laughs> yeah. that question. Uh, I think it's not short or easy. Yeah, I mean, I think there are there is one thing we can say for sure, right? And we can say with the apostles in Acts, we must obey God rather than man. So if there is a conflict, right? I mean, if if there's something I am obligated to do and the civil government prohibits me from doing that, um, I I have to do it anyway. And I need, I need to be willing um, to bear the consequences of that. And I just have to trust that Christ is with me and... Um, what happens happens and so uh i think that's right now i think when when those situations happen uh so the the, the way you originally put the question is what if the, the government turns against the church it, what what if the church is trying to prohibit the church from preaching the gospel or or teaching something that's in the scriptures that the church must be teaching um i think the church needs to keep doing what it's supposed to be doing uh, mm -hmm. but i do think we do it we do it in a humble way mm uh we don't do it i don't i don't think we stick our chest out in some kind of a macho way we yeah. defy you know give the middle finger to the government i don't think that's what we're called to do i think what we are called to do is we, we are always to be humble uh and we don't want to be in situations where we have to disobey uh the government when we have to uh, uh, engage in some sort of civil uh resistance rebellion whatever um, so we do it humbly. I think we we never, as a church, the church never takes up the sword in defense of Christ. Uh, Christ is able to defend himself. We don't. The, the church has the keys of the kingdom. It has the word and sacraments. It doesn't have it doesn't have the physical sword. And so we don't we don't take up the sword in defense of ourselves. But we can humbly petition. Uh, hmm. We 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 see the apostles doing this in the Book of Acts. Right? They they ask for protection. Uh, we do that, and um, sometimes the government may listen. Uh, we 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 hope so. It's probably more likely to listen if we ask humbly uh, than if we ask in a defiant uh, kind of way. So those those are some um, those are some things. I, I do think you know if we're if we're thinking about other sorts of areas of life that maybe it's not the church directly that's being implicated, but there are just other injustices that we are concerned about. Well, I mean, I. Yeah, that that's that's a big issue. Um, trying to think how how I might say something briefly here. I would say, um, I I think we as Christians should 
when we identify those areas, we should try to work with as many different people as possible, right? I mean, we don't want to do it in the name of Christ necessarily. We want to mm. like find as many people, other people that we can, that would work with us, that would, um, because we're, we're supposed to be promoting peace and order and justice among all people. So let's find other people, even people who don't share our faith, uh, to try to work for what's good. Mm. Um, I, I think we should try to exhaust peaceful means for changing laws and changing governments. Um, so th those are a few thoughts. Um, uh, there is a chapter in my book, Politics mm -hmm. uh, After Christendom, where I try to uh, address these in um, a little bit more detail. But um, I, I don't think it's I don't think it's really ever going to be easy for the church when it finds itself in these you know yeah. in these very difficult circumstances. And you know it it calls for. Uh, a lot of wisdom and maturity in order to do these things well. And I, I don't think we're never going to get a, a, a neat formula that you just kind of plug in the numbers and you get a ready-made answer. I think yeah, that's, often not going to work like that. Yeah. And that's, I think another quote unquote misconception or misunderstanding people have of two kingdom doctrine is whenever the government says it, then we just kind of bow our heads and say, yes, whatever the government says, we'll do it, mm. which does not sound exactly like what you're saying. Uh, no, it's, it's not what I'm saying. And, um, yeah, I um, uh, I think we have a responsibility to be, it's not just the government's responsibility to be promoting justice. We all have a responsibility exactly. to be yep. promoting justice uh, where, where wherever we are. And um, that, that sometimes means that we, um, um, that we work against government policies, even though I think, as I was saying, we do it in a way that is <laughs> yeah, as exactly. peaceful and um yeah we don't go on the news and let everybody possible. else know like hey we're against the government right now please join us it's no we we do this humbly with humble hearts um uh, praying that that the lord would open up the open up the gates for us to do this more peacefully right. hmm. so if um i guess we could agree that christianity as, as a believer can help you be a good leader when you're a Christian, you are in the, and you're doing something in the common kingdom, but a leader doesn't always help Christianity be good. Right. So just because you're a leader doesn't mean you're going to represent Christianity correctly. Right. So, uh, and I, yeah. I start to think of these things because people that are just representing political office. So just because you're a leader doesn't mean you're going to be automatically representing Christianity in a good way. Christianity is already good as it is pres uh, prescribed in the Bible. It's good objectively the way it is. And that's part of the kingdom of God. And nothing we're going to do in the common kingdom is going to make it even better in God's kingdom, right? But yeah. as Christians, we can benefit as believers bringing our values of Christianity to serve the common kingdom in a good way is I think kind of the moral of the story of what I'm hearing and it's helping assuage me on some of this stuff. So feel free to jump in if I totally botched something and you disagree and thump <laughs> me on the head. But so the three of us, we're Christians. So yes and amen. That's great. And we're American citizens, but we know one of them is permanent. Now we're part of God's kingdom permanently. The three of us will be hanging out in, in heaven one day. We're not always going to be American citizens. We're only going to be American citizens until we die. So as our role right now, we're both, right? We're both Americans and we're both part citizens of God's kingdom. 
just to wrap up the episode, I know this is kind of maybe a little bit repetitive, but just to put a cherry on top to close it, how do we faithfully navigate these realms right now? Yeah, I, I would say for one thing, uh, even though we are dual citizens in a very real sense, uh, it should be always clear which citizenship is most important. Mm -hmm. And this gets to your question. There's one that's permanent and there's one that's not. And um, uh, so I think that's one thing. It's uh, our, as Paul says in Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven. That's the, Amen. that is what really matters. That's, that's what really makes our hearts, you know, swell yeah. with pride and joy, right? Uh, yeah. uh, much more than, you know, hearing our <laughs> national anthem. We, we hope. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, but secondly, it's, yeah, as, as we've been talking, uh, if the Lord has placed us in the United States, if this is where, uh, we are citizens, then we have responsibility to try to serve, um, to serve our neighborhoods, to serve our communities, uh, to serve our workplaces, um, to try to do our work with excellence, uh, to try to do what promotes justice and peace, uh, and, uh, and, we're, we're, we should be grateful uh, when the Lord opens up opportunities for that. Uh, and at the same time, and, and we can be, we can have a certain measure of patriotism, right? I mean, there's, there are good forms of patriotism, mm -hmm. um, but mm -hmm. we also, we have to be willing to say, um, um, you know, with Psalm 146, put no confidence in princes. Yeah. Um, they're not, they're, they're, they're mortal and they can't save. Yeah. Uh, and they make they make mistakes. Uh, they make grievous mistakes. And mm -hmm. uh, sometimes our political communities turn into horrible places. And um, and so as American citizens, you know, there's a lot there's so much to be thankful for. So many privileges and benefits we have as Americans. But America is far, far from perfect. And we need to be willing to be critical uh, of yeah. United States as appropriate, um, not to tear it down, but hopefully to make it better. And um, I think if we can, if if we can keep the proper proportion, and we can remember what citizenship is always more important, that will actually allow us to be better American citizens, hmm. um, because it'll be not a sort of a mindless hmm. um, patriotism, but it'll be actually something that desires to serve and to benefit our fellow citizens yeah if you yeah it's what it sounds like is if if you don't quite realize the eternal kingdom you're part of that you take part of right now and then we're going to be it's, it's going to be consummated new heavens new earth um when when jesus comes back after mm -hmm. or during the time we're alive or after we die whenever it is um but if you so champion this kind of temporal world then that's when some of these conversations crop up. That's when you identify mm -hmm. yourself with something more than another thing than thinking I'm a citizen of Christ's kingdom. That's going to help me think differently in this common kingdom. And it's going to help me temporalize this common kingdom and, and not so kind of lift it up on a pedestal at the same level that I lift up this other kingdom that doesn't seem as big at times, um, which is which is really helpful. And I think that helps us navigate these political conversations, navigate economic conversations navigate a lot of these conversations where I think so often we think and, and rightly so in some cases like Christianity favors some ideas or some methodology of a certain political party versus another or like it kind of takes from different places and doesn't just take from one um, I think so often we think if you're a Christian you're part of this party 
or if you're not Christian, you're part of this party. If you if you vote this way, then we have to discipline you because you don't vote the same way that we do. Um, when it's like you said, it's a lot more complicated than that. Um, but it's it's a helpful conversation I think to have for Christians and to talk to non Christians. Like you you can be, I think non Christians think like if I'm a Christian, then I have to vote this way or I have to think this way. Um, when you I think you like you said you confuse both kingdoms. You make them kind of the same thing. Um, so yeah, yeah Doctor. Oh yeah, what were you gonna say? Oh, sorry. And internationally, looking yeah. at the Christians, our fellow <laughs> brothers and sisters in other countries around the world. We're, we're so they, like American centric. Sometimes we forget like other places yeah. exist. No, we have true brothers and sisters. We're gonna spend eternity with in heaven. That are in other countries. Who cares what country they're from? They're our brothers and sisters. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cool. Dr. Van Druden, thanks so much for coming on, for talking about this. Um, yeah, I don't know if, there, if there's anything we missed out that you want to, to end with, but other than that, yeah, any any advice you have for Christians navigating political conversations, um, mm-hmm. anything anything along those lines, and we'll, we'll end it up uh, here. Yeah, I I don't think I have a whole lot to add. We've uh, we've covered a lot of ground, and um, I, yeah. I certainly appreciate you guys thinking about these things, and um, trying to help your listeners think, think through them. It's, um, yeah, I mean, we're, we're in this together. I hope, you know, we, we Christians can, um, we can continue to grow in our, in our understanding of our common life, uh, together. And, um, uh, I'm glad that you can try to promote that. Uh, yeah. What you're doing. Yeah. You can, you don't, yeah, you can quote unquote cross party lines and still be brothers and sisters in, in Christ. And it's not like, Oh, I'm against you because you didn't vote the same way that I did is no, if we, we believe in Jesus and he died for our sins and there's, there's other th- stuff that comes with this, but we can, we can have, we can have commonality with this stuff and it, it's helpful with, with these conversations. So yeah, mm-hmm. Dr. Venture, thank you so much for coming on, for talking about this, for your research. Um, and we'll, we'll wait for 2026 for when, <laughs> for when your book comes out, which yeah. seems like, like I said, a long time for us, but I'm, I'm sure it, it seems the, uh, the deadline is fast looming for you. We'll do a book club in four years, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So put us on your uh put us on your calendar for 2026. But mm-hmm. I'm I'm sure we'll we'll talk to you before then. But yeah, thanks for coming on and thanks for talking about this. And yeah, hope you have a, a good day. And it's uh it's weird not seeing you around campus anymore. Yeah. Well, I, I have other people sitting in the front row now. <laughs> that's that's right. <laughs> I was a front because if I didn't sit in the front row, I wouldn't pay attention. That's just like the way my mind thinks. Um, so I had to, so like it would force me to stay on topic or yeah, well, stay on. it's good to talk with you guys and, um, good to see you again. Yep. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening to the episode of our podcast, Guilt, Grace, Gratitude. And if you go to our show notes, as a reminder, there is a link to Patreon and you can find out how to become a bridge builder. Yeah, we've got five different support levels and the levels go from uh, just a a $5 donation to help keep the lights on and and get some equipment all the way up to you guys get to be part of our decision-making process for episodes, for content, for authors, for guests, whoever it may be. And you guys get consistent conversations, maybe even since our episodes, the second that we record them, instead of having to wait for episodes to come out. So look at that, see what you wanna do. As part of that, we have a goal to get about $1,000 a month. That's to cover some costs, get some new equipment, and just hire some people as well. And also, if you guys can rate and review us on iTunes, on Spotify, on any one of your podcasting platforms, This is the number one way besides word of mouth that word gets out about what we're doing. 
So we hope to see you guys next week.